This morning, we're going to continue on in uh, the series in the book of Daniel that we've been in over the last few weeks. And um, each week of this series, we've been diving into to one of the chapters and been challenging you to uh, read one of those chapters ahead of time that we're going to talk about. And so um, this week, we're in Daniel chapter 6. And uh, this is one of maybe the most well-known story in all the Bible, maybe outside of Jesus and the cross, of course, but besides that, it's, it's probably the most well-known story. And if you tell people, um, what, if you ask people, what's Daniel chapter 6 about, they'll go, I have no idea. But if you go, Daniel and the lion's den, right? Like a lot of people can finish that sentence. And so maybe for you, you're one of those people that um, when you think of Daniel and the lion's den, when you think of this story, it's very familiar to you. And you could maybe even remember the images of, of the pages of the kid's Bible that your parents read this story to you out of when you were a kid. Or maybe you sit here this morning and you're like, I, I couldn't finish that sentence. I, ha- I have no idea what this story is about. And you've never delved into this before or heard about it. Or maybe you sit here this morning and you're somewhere in between. You're like, I don't know, I have like this vague recollection of, of Daniel and the lion's den and what happened. But I've never really given it a whole lot of thought or read it in depth. And so this morning, um, I, wanna, I, I, re- I really want to like break some rules of preaching. And I just want to read us this story. Uh, because it's really an, an engaging story, not just a story, history of, uh, of Daniel and what happened to him. And as I do, I want you to try to, to hear it with fresh ears. So maybe this morning, you know, you've, you've read this. You're one of those people that's read it uh, numerous times. And you kind of know what this chapter is about. Um, I want you to hear it with fresh ears. And so I want you to just kind of take it in. And as we dig into this, I want you to kind of put yourself in Daniel's shoes, right? So imagine you're Daniel. Let me give you a little bit of context again um, that we've been talking about throughout this series. Imagine you're Daniel. So your family's been killed, right? You were taken captive as a young teenager, 14, 15 years old. You were removed from everything that you knew, your family, your culture, your religion, everything, and taken to this foreign country of Babylon. And this new country that you grow, essentially grow up in is this violent, we've talked about this over the weeks, this brutal, violent nation, this arrogant nation, and yet they were victorious. They were conquering and conquering and conquering. They are victorious over and over and over again. And you're indoctrinated into their culture, right? Like you're forced to become one of them. You're learning their history, their philosophy, their customs, their religions. And yet you held on to your God. Again, this is so interesting to me because Daniel was so young when he was taken. And so he had 14, 15 years of learning about Yahweh. You're learning about the one true God. And then he was removed and he's like brainwashed for the rest of his life, and yet he holds on. He compromises in the things that don't really matter in the big picture, right? But in the things of God, he doesn't compromise. He holds to his convictions no matter what. And we've seen that over the last few weeks as we've been digging into the first part of the book. And as, you know, again, putting yourself in Daniel, as you trust God, you see God do amazing things with you in your life, but also in the lives of your best friends. Miraculous things. And we've seen that over these first six chapters. And as you trusted God, he proved himself trustworthy 
over and over and over again. And he not only preserved your life, you know, as you're taken captive into this foreign country, he not only preserved your life, but you actually outlived the empire that captured you, right? And so by the time we get to chapter six, the empire of Babylon is done, it's no more. And this new empire of the Medes and the Persians has authority and they have power. And so not only does God preserve you, but then God honors you in the eyes of the old king, the kings of Babylon, you have this authority and this power all of your life, this influence all of your life in Babylon. And then in the new empire, you have the same thing. And so by the time we get to chapter six, Daniel's no longer a young man, even though that video made him look jacked and young and built, right? But he's no longer a young man. Daniel now is in his 80s. He's an old man and he's in this new empire and God has given him again favor in the eyes of the king. He's given him honor in this new kingdom and yet not by everybody. There's this group of people, this group of leaders that are hungry for the power that Daniel's been given. They're jealous of him. They're godless. And they'll stop at nothing to take the power that Daniel has, even if it means taking his life as part of it. And so as we dig into this chapter, you're Daniel. Put yourself in his shoes. But I want you to do this as well. There's really like four main players in this chapter. There's four main players in this, in this part of the story. So one is Daniel, okay? The second one are the, the, the bad guys. They're called the satraps and the administrators, okay? We'll, we'll dig into this. some of the, the bad leaders throughout the empire. The third one is the king, Darius, right? So he's the new king. He's kind of new in his reign. And then the fourth one, of course, is God who's the true king, okay? So as we dig into this, I want you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes, but I also want you to put yourself in the shoes of these other four main players in the story, okay? And try to, let's, let's kind of try to dig in and read it with fresh ears, okay? So here it is. So this is Daniel 6. We'll throw it up on the screen here too, and we'll start in verse 1. So it pleased Darius, Darius is the king, to appoint 120 satraps. So the satraps were kind of like, stool right here. The satraps were kind of like governors, right? So kind of like the state, we have state governors. They were kind of like state governors, okay? And so the king, Darius, appoints 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators. So these were guys who were regional rulers over them, over these satraps. So three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So kind of make him like the vice president, right? The king's still the king, but he gives Daniel, all, he wants to give Daniel all the authority to kind of rule in his stead, okay? At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. 
Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So the king put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these man, men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So, they, so this is where our video picked up. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then, he said to, then they said to the king, well, Daniel, the, one of those exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. When the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you can serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound, or, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in, and they were thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth. This is what he said. This is the king's response. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, People must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And it ends this way. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A lot of commentators that I read, a lot of theologians, prefer the alternate translation there. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So a lot of people think that Darius and Cyrus were the same person. Darius was just another name for Cyrus the king. So that's chapter 6. 
That's Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. One of the most amazing stories, one of the most amazing histories of the Bible. And, and here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. So I want to, hopefully you're kind of getting, trying to get into the minds of these four main players in the story, especially Daniel. Here's what I want to do. I want to dig in. I want to spend a few minutes looking at each of these four guys or groups of guys and say, what can we learn from them? I want to just pull one thing. There's lots of things that we could learn from them. But I just want to pull one thing that really kind of struck my heart this week as I was digging into it. And then I want to end our time by sharing a story with you of a present-day Daniel that um, is actually part of us. Uh, and that'll make sense here in a few minutes. So, so let's dig into these guys. Let's, let's start off with the bad guys first, shall we? The satraps and the administrators. So these guys are the villains of the story, right? Out of their hunger for power and recognition, man, these guys are willing to go to great lengths to get a great man killed so they could have his power, right? So they could have Daniel's authority. And so these guys hated Daniel, right? Like they, hate, they hated him. They're struggling to find anything that's wrong with him, anything that like they can get him in trouble with. And so finally they throw up their hands and are like, we're not going to find anything unless it has to do with the law of his God. And so they go so far as to get a law passed, right? That anybody that prays to any other God or human besides the king during the next 30 days gets thrown into the lion's den. And I, and I, I don't know what goes through your mind when you, when you hear that, like when you think about that. But as I try to get into the minds of these guys, I, I, it begs a question for me. The question is, what did Daniel do to make these guys hate him so much? Right? Like they hated Daniel. What in the world did Daniel do to make them hate him so much? And so this week, I'm like digging in to, you know, reading all about this, like trying to find an answer to this, like what, like, is there something here that I haven't seen? And what I found was really, really interesting, fascinating to me. You know, you know what I discovered what Daniel did to cause these guys to hate him? Nothing. Nothing. Like he did nothing to them to cause him to hate him. The, on, the only thing that Daniel did, that he did, was that he was better than them. Like he was more exceptional than them, right? Did you catch what it said in 6.3? It said, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the kingdom. What did Daniel do that was so bad that they hated him enough to get this law passed and he would be killed? He'd be out of the way so they could have his power. It was exceptional. He was better than them. And he loved God. And he wouldn't compromise in his faith. One of the guys that I was reading, a guy named Ronald Wallace, said this. He said, there's no reason whatever why this man should be persecuted and hounded to death except that he was good and he stood before men as a sign of the existence and grace of a good God. And so these guys hated him, right? Why did they hate him so much? He was exceptional. He was a better leader than them. He had more wisdom than them. And he loved the God that they detested. There's no indication whatsoever that Daniel did anything else to cause them to hate him, to, to wrong these men. And in many ways, they were just jealous, right? They were, they were jealous of the power that Daniel had. And as probably all of us know from firsthand experience, because we've all dealt with jealousy in our lives, 
jealousy can often lead to what? Hate, right? Jealousy often leads to hate. What did Daniel do to deserve the hate of these guys? Nothing. He just had what they wanted, and they hated him for it, right? And they're willing to go to great lengths to get what they wanted that he had. And guys, let's be honest about it. This sort of thing happens today, too. Here's what I get from the satraps and the administrators. Sometimes people hate you because of them, not you. Right? Like Sometimes people hate us because of them and not us. It's true. And in situations like that, there's nothing, maybe there's nothing that we could do. Sometimes we give people good reason to hate us. Right? Like sometimes we wrong people and we hurt people and we give them reason to hate us. In those situations, man, we got to step back and we got to take ownership of those things, take responsibility and go, I, I am so sorry I wronged you and I hurt you. Right? But there's other times that we are unjustly the recipient of someone else's hatred through no fault of our own. And I look at that and I think, I think that happens quite often in this world. Maybe more and more as time goes on. And our temptation could be to want to change, you know? Like, I must have, I must have done something. i got to change this about me. Or people please. Or pout about it. Or maybe we, like, beat ourselves up about it. And we're like, I, just, I must have done something. And we frantically try to figure out what we did wrong. When really, we're just the recipient of other people's baggage, Right? Sometimes we're just the recipient of other people's issues. And I think that's the case with these satraps and these administrators. And I want you to take note of Daniel's response to them, right? How does, how does Daniel respond to these guys' issues, these guys' baggage, and the trap that they sent for him, that they set for him? What does Daniel do? Nothing different, right? He, he does nothing different. They get this decree issued. Anybody in the next 30 days that prays to any god or human except the king is going to get in big, big trouble. They're going to get thrown into the lion's den. And what does Daniel, if you read it, what does Daniel do? What's the first thing that he does, it says in the text? He goes home, look at it, verse 10. He goes home, says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, not privately, privately, but publicly, Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. I love that, right? Because in a world of danger, in a world filled with danger, Daniel's faith, Daniel's commitment to God made him feel safe, right? In a world filled with chaos, there's lots of chaos in our world too, right? In a world filled with chaos, Daniel's under control, in a world filled with change, Daniel remains the same. And so his context, his circumstances, his culture, the cultural pressures that he faced didn't shape Daniel, right? What shaped Daniel? His God did. So, so as I look at Daniel, here's what I get from Daniel. So we, so we talked about satraps and the administrators, right? People, sometimes people hate you because of them, not you. I look at Daniel, and here's what I get from Daniel. I see a guy who's committed to God no matter what. Committed, commitment to God no matter what. And I don't know about you, but I look at that and I think, that's what I want to be like in my own life. You know, like when, when things are going, when it's convenient, I want to see commitment to God. 
It's easy then, right? Like it's inconvenient. It's easy then. But when it's inconvenient, I want to see commitment to God in my life. When it's popular, commitment to God. It's easy then, right? When it's unpopular, commitment to God. When it's safe, commitment to God. No problem. When it's unsafe, commitment to God. The context doesn't matter. The circumstances don't matter. The cultural pressures don't matter, right? Daniel's life, in Daniel's life, we see someone who walked with God, who trusted God, who was committed to God no matter what. And, and sometimes, guys, like, take note, sometimes it costs us much, right? Like when, we, when we live that way, when we go, I am committed to God, I'm committed to Jesus no matter what, sometimes like Daniel Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, right? We're probably not going to get thrown into a lion's den, any of us. But there's going to be a lot of cost for us as well. We can lose friends. We can lose jobs, right? We can lose influence. Students, we could lose popularity. Sometimes it's not very popular, especially when we're younger, to be a Christian. I think in the story that I'm going to end with, you're going to see a real tangible example of things that we could lose that are like very relevant in our lives today that you'll be able to connect with. So, so like, let's be real. There can be a huge cost when we're committed to God. But let me say this too. It's worth it, right? And we see that because not only does it lead, like when we say I'm committed to God no matter what, not only does it lead to a deeper relationship with him, and it does, but people watch, right? Like people are watching our lives. People are seeing the way that we're living. They're seeing our faith. They're seeing our commitment, and it makes an impact on them. Here, here's a question for you, to, an important question for you to wrestle with. What do people see when they look at your life? Like we look at Daniel's life, and we're like, commitment to God no matter what. What do people see when they look at your life? Do they see somebody who's different? Do they see somebody who's just like everybody else? Right? Do they, they look at you and they, they see somebody who's different because of your faith in Jesus, because of your walk with Jesus, because of your love with Jesus? Or do they look at your life and go, yeah, just like everybody else? Daniel, commitment to God no matter what. Let, so let's talk about the king. Let's move on. Let's talk about the king. What do we learn from him? King Darius. Well, I look at King Darius, and I'm like, man, that dude got played, right? Like these guys, these satraps, these administrators, they used and abused him. They knew exactly the right buttons to push, and they pushed them at precisely the right time. And so, so like, I think this is interesting to note, like in the context of this chapter, Darius would have been a relatively new king. And so Daniel and very likely some of these other satraps and administrators, they would have been new to him. They would have been like learning about him and his leadership would have been new to them, right? And so Darius is kind of establishing his rule. He's establishing his authority and his power. And these guys knew that, right? And they knew that stroking his ego by allowing prayers to him and him alone over these next 30 days would cause people to really think that king, the king's going to like this, right? 
Like it's going to cause people to think that that king is someone really, really special. Maybe he's even godlike. And so the king falls right into it. Darius falls right into it. What does he do? He makes a dumb decision, right? Darius makes a dumb decision that he would immediately regret the results of. Why? Because he liked Daniel, right? Like Darius really liked him. He trusted him. He respected him. And he, he actually wanted him to be the leader of the nation. If I got Daniel in place, if I give Daniel rule and authority, I kind of kick back. I kind of relax because this dude is um, he's exceptional, the text says, right? And so he, he issues this decree that, you know, you can't pray to anybody else. And immediately, Daniel's in big, big trouble. Here, here's what I learned from King Darius, ready? Even kings make foolish decisions. And for some reason, that makes me feel a lot better about myself, right? Because we make foolish decisions. This might be shocking to you, but I have made many foolish decisions in my life, right? Like stupid choices. Think through your life. Like think of the, some of the stupid things that you've done. I'll give you one example from my life. Go to the next picture. When I was a, a senior in high school, I thought this was a cool outfit to wear to my homecoming dance. I specifically went out and bought a red jacket with matching red shoes and a red Snoopy tie. I thought that was cool. Dumb decision, right? I feel like I need to call Jenny Way right now and apologize to her still for my stupid decisions. Like this is, this is kind of part of who we are. I don't know. We make dumb decisions as people sometimes. We make foolish decisions. What about people from the Bible? Any, any um, like, people that are kind of the heroes of the Bible that have made stupid decisions? Well, how about the guy who led the church after Jesus ascended up into heaven? You know who that is? The, the rock. Not the actor, the rock. A different rock. Peter, right? How many stupid decisions did Peter make that we, we just have the ones recorded in the Bible, right? Like, how many stupid decisions did he make? Slice some guy's ear off. Jesus is like, oh, come on. Walks on water and then starts to sing. Jesus is like, man, where's your faith? Betrays Jesus at his time of greatest need. See, sometimes we make stupid decisions. Even kings and presidents and great leaders and wise people make bad decisions sometimes. We're not perfect, right? And by the way, God doesn't expect us to be. And, and I think this is cool. Although I think we should be striving and working toward making decisions with wisdom and good discernment, it's also comforting to know. Sorry, my voice is going here. It's also comforting to know that even in our poor decisions, <clears throat> God can use those to bring glory to himself, right? And that's what we see here. You look at King Darius. God used King Darius' stupid decision to bring glory to himself. Do you remember how, how it ends? He sends out this decree to all of his kingdom, and he's like, man, Daniel's God is the one true God. They would have had all of these other gods, little g gods. He sends this out, and he's like, Daniel's God is the God. He's the one that we have reverence for. He's the one that we fear, right? Guys, God does that with us too. God is a God <clears throat> who uses our weaknesses for his purposes. Let me say that again because that's really important. God is a God who uses our weaknesses for his purposes over and over and over again. That's encouraging to me as somebody with a lot of weaknesses. 
as somebody who's made a lot of foolish decisions in his life. Let's go to our fourth main player. How about God? What do we learn from God? Well, we said that, you know, throughout this series, over the first uh, five weeks of this series, like we've talked a lot about God and things that we learn from him. And one of the things that we said is that the book of Daniel is not really a book about Daniel, even though he's the title of the book. It's not really a book about Daniel. It's really a book about God. We said the hero of the book of Daniel is not Daniel. The hero of the book of Daniel is God. It's a book about him. And so he's the one throughout the book that gets glory, not Daniel. He's the one that we talk about his power and his majesty, not Daniel. And yet, and I want you to think about like what a privilege this is for us. He often uses us to accomplish those things that he does to get glory in this world. He, he uses us to bring glory to himself. I'd say it this way. God makes his name famous through the faithful. God makes his name famous through the faithful. God used Daniel and his trust. Daniel's amazing faith his amazing trust in him to demonstrate to the most powerful guy on the planet. Darius at that time would have been the most, so, so Trump is the leader of the, our president is the leader of the free world right now. This guy would have been the leader of the world back then. The most powerful guy on the planet. God used Daniel to show him that he alone was God, right? And guys, God often does that with us today as well. If we trust him the same way, if we love him the same way, if we know him the same way, if we're committed to him no matter what. Let me ask you, is God making his name famous through you? Think about your own life. We look at Daniel and we're like, man, God did amazing things through Daniel. Daniel's not that different than you and me. He had hard circumstances, so do we. He had strong faith, so can we. God made his name famous through Daniel. Is God making his name famous through you, through me? Do we want that? That's a legit question. Like, do I, do I want that? And am I willing to order my life that way? Do I want people to look at me and go, most important thing about him clearly is Jesus. That's a legit question. Here's how I want to end. I want to end with um, a story, and I've been so excited to share this. This was really encouraging to people last night. So as I started this series, <coughs> excuse me, one of the guys um, that's part of our campus who's 87 years old and sharp as a tack, 87 years old, came to me after, uh, I think it was the first weekend of the series, and he said, did I ever tell you my Daniel story? And I go, no, I don't think I heard your story. I go, we go to breakfast sometimes. I just, I love this guy. I have such respect for him. He loves Jesus incredibly. He's like, I ever tell you my dad? I'm like, no, you didn't tell me. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to send it to you. So he sent it to me. I, I read it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to share this. I got to share this. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read this story to you. This, um, and this is Dean Johnson's story. And so Dean, he, he'll be here at the next service, I believe. He wasn't here last night. He'll be here at the next service. And um, Dean is an amazing, amazing guy. And he had, sometimes we can look at a passage like this and we can go, I don't know how to connect with that. I don't know how to apply that to my life because the chances of me getting thrown into a lion's den are really, really slim, right? We could have trouble. I want you to hear Dean's story because he didn't get thrown into a lion's den, but he had very much a Daniel 6 experience. 
Okay, so I tried to I tried to whittle this down. It's two pages. I'm like, oh, I don't want to read all this. And I started cutting stuff. I'm like, I can't cut it. I'm just going to read it fast, okay? So hang with me here. This is Dean Johnson's story. In 1933, at three years old, so he was born in 1930. At three years old, my dad died from an accident. These were tough times economically. The country trying to recover from the Great Depression, a young widowed mother with no income, and three children, ages five, three, and one. Mom married a farmer from Belmont County, so we were raised on the farm with cows and pigs and chickens and learning how to work with draft horses. Those financially lean times did not allow for health checkups like vision, hearing, or dental checks. As a result, I ended up with amblyopia. I'm sure I said that wrong. It means lazy eye. I ended up with lazy eye. One eye sees better than the other. But if you grow up with it, it doesn't become a handicap. I, I love his perspective. I love his heart. After graduating high school, I had a few menial, low-paying jobs. The big dream is to land the good job, big pay, security, and benefits. A high school buddy and I traveled to Canton to apply for jobs at the Timken Company. We both passed the physical exam. He passed the vision test and was hired. I was rejected because of weak vision in the left eye. More menial jobs, register for selective service, more jobs. Notice from selective service, come to Cleveland for a physical. I'm not worried I can't pass the physical. Then I remembered the vision thing. Wrong, you pass. You did, you do, you'll do good in the Army. Two years employment by Uncle Sam, including an all-expense paid trip to Korea. Thankfully, a round trip. Return home, marry that beautiful girl who wrote to me every day. I take on some more menial jobs, truck driver and construction. Then came the good offer. I could apply to East Ohio Gas Company. Steady pay, steady job, fair pay, good benefits, and good security. The interview went well. I was accepted. But, I, but I'd have to pass the physical. My Dean Johnson logic says that if I was good enough to serve two years for this country, then I deserve this job. I passed the physical easy, and I passed the vision test because I cheated. <laughs> the doctor didn't notice that I used my good eye both times. <laughs> he goes on, he said he was reading in the Bible, and he came across a particular passage that God used to like convict his heart that he had lied to get this job. And so he was like, felt such guilt from the Lord. So he says, I made an appointment, and I went back to the boss that hired me, and I confessed what I'd done. I mean, just see his heart here. His reply was that my foreman was giving him excellent progress reports on my work, and he had a report from the doctor that said I'd passed. So go back to work and come back if you ever think your vision is a danger to you or to others. I worked for the gas company for many years when, like nearly every company, they decided to cut the workforce and still keep everything going as usual. Pressure station operators controlled all the gas pressure feeding into Cleveland, a 365-day, 24-hour job. For many years, the only work that we did on Sundays was to control the pressure, the gas pressure, no maintenance work. Then when the workforce began to get cut back, it was decided that on Sundays, we would also have to cut the grass, paint, and do other maintenance. I felt that as a Christian, I, and again, I just want you to see his heart here. I felt that as a Christian, I could justify working on Sunday if it was only maintaining gas flow, vital to heat homes and hospitals, etc. But cutting grass and painting was not vital. So I politely refused to do it on Sunday, offering to come in on my day off or other times to do the maintenance work at my expense. My offer was refused, and my boss was determined that I would either do the work or be terminated. I personally believe it was 
personal to him because he was not in agreement with Christian teaching. After a verbal and written counseling, I was to have a meeting with two bosses from management and one from union representation where I would be terminated. This was serious now. Two and a half years service and all the benefits possibly going down the tube. After praying and talking to my wife, she said, do what you think God wants you to do and I'll stand beside you. At the last moment, a supervisor from Canton who was over the ones attempting to fire me learned of the final meeting. He was aware of my work and my reputation of doing disaster recovery work. And he was also part of a church in Canton. He immediately canceled the meeting. His own meeting was held and he transferred me to the transmission department where I'd have Sundays off. I worked in that new position for two years. Somehow in the changeover, my pay got cut by $80 a month. Then he was part of a church called the Friends Church. It's a, it's a denomination. And so he started a disaster relief uh, uh, group service, I guess, through them, okay? And so it says, then at the Friends Action Board meeting, it was decided that Frida, who is his wife, and I would receive a stipend of $250 a month to offset personal money that we'd been spending on developing this disaster relief service. And so he says, down $80, back up $250. In two years working in the transmission department, I was able to bring my hourly pay up to considerably above where it was in the pressure stations. Sounds great, right? Then it happened again. Automation, downsizing. Our shop was being closed. We could be transferred to a job from a list of available openings with the promise that we would carry our present hourly pay scale and any future raises would be on top of that scale. The only possible opening that I could reasonably fill was back with the boss who was going to fire me. With no other options and real concerns, I took it. The first Monday I returned to my old job, that foreman grabbed me by my shirt front and he said, are you going to give me any bleeping trouble? I said, God and I have the same deal as before. If you want maintenance work done on Sunday, I'll do it for free on my day off. His reply was unprintable. That Friday night, he walked out of the door and on Monday, he went to the hospital to have a hip replacement. The replacement was done twice. It never worked well, and he never returned to work. And he got around with a walker or a crutch the rest of his life. I finished my time at East Ohio Gas after 29 years at a higher hourly rate than all the guys I worked with. I retired from East Ohio in 1984 to devote full time as director of Friends Disaster Service. He says, this account is given with great praise and joy to God, who is faithful to uphold his children. Daniel faced lions. I faced unreasonable bosses. My hat is off to Daniel for showing us how. I read that, and I'm like, man, I love that. I love that, because this, this man, Dean Johnson, was a guy who was committed to Jesus no matter what, Right? And we look at this passage with Daniel in the lion's den, and you see a guy in Daniel who's willing to die for his faith, right? Like he's willing to go so far as take my life, but I'm not going to go against God. And maybe we read that and we're like, yeah, I'd make that same decision. You know, if I'm, if I'm put in that situation where it's like forsake Jesus or die, I choose to die. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, that's what I would do. And maybe that's true. 
I, I hope that each of our faiths are that strong. But you know what I love about Dean's story? Like I look at Dean and I suspect that he was a guy who was willing for much of his life if it came down to it, to die for his faith in Jesus. I suspect that he would have made that choice. But I look at Dean, and I also see a guy who is willing to live for Jesus, right? And I think, how about me? How about me? Here, here's my last question to you, I guess. Am I willing to not just die for Jesus, but also live for him? Because guys, let's be honest. Sometimes that's harder. Sometimes it's harder because it means that we're willing to continually sacrifice over and over and over again in our lives anything for him. And it means maybe we're willing to sacrifice over and over and over again everything for him. It means I'm willing to be misunderstood by other people because of my trust in him. Because maybe different than anybody else around me, I want to put Jesus and what he says above what everything else in our culture may tell us. Sometimes it's harder to live for him than it is to make a decision to die for him. I look at Daniel. Daniel's a guy <clears throat> who died shortly after this. He was, he was in his 80s when all of this happened. And Daniel, as far as we know, was a guy who finished his life well. He was committed to God no matter what until the end. Dean Johnson is a guy who's in his 80s. He's 87 years old. And I can tell you that Dean is as passionate and committed to Jesus today as he's ever been in his entire life. And he is determined to be a guy who finishes well in his life. I look at the Bible, <clears throat> there's a guy named Paul who wrote a lot of our New Testament in the Bible, and he's a guy that finished his life well too. And at the end, right near the end of his life, one of the last letters that he wrote was a letter to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And one of the things that he wrote at the end was one of those things in my life that just, it's all, it, ever, ever since I first read it, it's resonated with me. I thought, I want to be able to say that to be true at the end of my life. This is what he says. This is what Paul writes. Think about this in your life. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I finished well, right? Fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Finished well. Was committed to God no matter what. How about you and your life? I realize we're all at different places on our spiritual journey here. Like how committed are you to Jesus? How in love with him are you? Are you, are you saying, I, I, I just want to live life. I want to get through life. I want to finish life. Are you saying, man, I want to I live my life well. And I want to finish my life well for him. Committed to him no matter what. Because if we do that, God will use us to make his name famous in this world. May that be true in each of our lives.